This episode is brought to you by Meerkat Village. Unlock the power of collaboration with Meerkat Village. Connect, coordinate, and transform support for children with special needs. Visit meerkatvillage.com and improve outcomes today. Hello, friends, and welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. I'm your host, Jess Ronnie, and today I'm excited to introduce to you Eric Jorgensen. Eric is a single dad to a 24-year-old autistic son, and this is a really difficult episode to listen to. Eric was recently diagnosed with cancer, and he is the solo provider and caregiver for his son. He is currently fighting for not only his future, but also his son's future as he seeks some sort of plan that would involve apartment living or something that would give his son purpose and meaning outside of his home. But before we dive in, I just wanted to share about something new that we have going on here at the Lucas Project and Coffee with Caregivers. We are now offering the opportunity for your business or you to pitch a product or a book on our podcast. And we have varying levels of support that we offer. And if this is something that you want to pursue and see if maybe it would be a good fit, we would love to talk to you. Currently, Coffee with Caregivers has an audience of over 300 caregivers who listen every other week to our interviews with caregivers all over the country. So it's an awesome opportunity for you to get your business or your product, or like I said, even your book out to a wider audience. Um, and if you wanna pursue some options, feel free to reach out at info at thelucasproject.org. And to stay connected with me and everything that I have going on, head to Just Plus SMS. And we also have some new resources on our website, thelucasproject.org. So go ahead and check those out. We always love to hear what you think. So rate, review, leave a comment. And we just really appreciate all of that feedback. And now introducing Eric Jorgensen. Well, hello, Eric. Welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. I'm excited to interview you today and just share your story with my listeners. Before we dive into everything, can you just give us an overview of who you are and who you live with and who you care for? Sure. Thanks for having me, Jess. Um, So my name is Eric Jorgensen. Just the high level stuff is I was widowed back in 2012, the same year I retired from the Navy. wasn't really a very present dad when I was in the military. So it was a crash course in how to become a parent to a 12 year old with significant needs. You know, my wife did all of his ADLs that led to me starting a company called special needs navigator doing businesses, true North disability planning, because um, at the risk of sounding conceited, I, I felt like I'm a pretty educated person and it's just ridiculously hard to figure out what you're supposed to do when you have a child with a disability to transition from high school. So I started a company to help people transition. My son is 24 now. I'm his legal guardian. Um, His primary diagnosis is autism. He's got intellectual disabilities, some mental health challenges, some physical challenge. I mean, you know, the soup, right? I mean, it just, you just kind of all throw it in there. It's never, it's seldom just one thing. 
there's a lot of co-occurring things with, with children that have uh, significant challenges often. Um, so he's living with me and for the time being, but we're trying to find him a, an alternative placement. Um, I would say residential, but when I say residential in, in the context of work, that usually means a group home where he would be living with, you know, three or four roommates. He wouldn't do well with roommates. So I'm looking more for like an apartment kind of thing. I mean, it's still a residential placement, but it's not your, in air quotes, traditional. Mm-hmm. Where do you live? I'm in Maryland, Frederick, Maryland. Okay. Do you have pretty good resources there? <laughs> um, Loaded question. Yeah, it, it's it's six when we have. So my son's in that awkward middle, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, he's not so capable that he can go to college, get a job. I think he could have a job with support, but um, he's also not so affected by his disability that he can't do anything. You know, he doesn't use a wheelchair. He doesn't need a G tube. He doesn't need people to, to, so it's that, that he wants to be really independent, but he's just not, he's not there yet. Okay. So we have staff, but he doesn't want to interact with the staff. So yes and no. I mean, yes, the supports could be there if he was willing to let us help him, but he's just capable enough to know to say no. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And he's nonverbal. No, he chooses to be nonverbal. Oh, okay. Um, he he can talk. He gave he gave when he graduated from high school. Well, when he left school with his certificate, he actually gave the commencement address. Oh, he actually spoke. That's um. So he is awesome. capable of speaking. He just he he chooses not to. He he doesn't will not engage. If you ask him a question, he will just stare at you. That's that has to be frustrating, <laughs> as his parent. Um. So to back up, did you know from birth that he was going to have some challenges or when did that whole story unfold? Um, no, we didn't know. He when he was born in 99, so back then autism wasn't um as prevalent as it is now. The you know, um I, I hesitate here because I don't remember a lot. Again, I was gone a lot. I was I was deployed most of my career. And then I lived, I was a geographical bachelor for five years where I would come home every three or four months for two or three weeks. So when I say I really wasn't around my kid, I really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I remember my wife saying, uh, he was he he was progressing normally and hitting all of his markers. And then um, the first deployment I did after, after he was born, he just started regressing. And I don't know if that, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm correlation causation you know i don't know right um but when i came back we took him to a a pediatric neuropsych or something and um he was diagnosed with pdd nos you know pervasive development disability not otherwise specified they didn't want to they told us they didn't want to give him an autism diagnosis because they didn't want to label him at three years old they wanted to wait until he was five to see if, if there would be any, and you know, nowadays they're not doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we took him back at five and they gave him the formal diagnosis of autism. And then um, after, after my wife died, um, one of the, one of the visits found or told me, and maybe it had been brought up in the past, but it was the first visit I had with him that he had um, something called pectus excavatum. So his sternum was pushing against his heart and his lung. So it took us a couple of years, but we finally found a cardiologist or a surgeon 
uh, children's where they were able to correct it by sticking a titanium rod in his chest and then leaving it in for three years to, to shape it out. Okay. So he's had like a bunch of medical stuff, but it's come up. None of it was identified at birth, right? It was always, it, it's been identified kind of piecemeal. You know, he's got Tourette's, which manifests, manifests itself in ticks. You know, his head will jerk. Not so much now, but when he was younger and they said he might grow out of it, um, which he appears he has. Um, but again, it's all been kind of piecemeal where I don't know what my wife was, you know, and this doesn't, I don't want to sound like I'm casting shade on her. I just truly don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um uh, you know, what she, what doctors have told her, I feel like a lot of the diagnoses, maybe they didn't talk to her about because maybe they just didn't know back then. Mm-hmm. You know, I think med- medicine has progressed a lot over the years. So did I answer your question? I feel like I'm a little rambly. <laughs> no, you did. You answered it perfectly. Um, And no siblings. He, he does have a sibling. Okay. Um, she's not in his life. I have a stepdaughter who was nine when I met my wife. Okay. Um, I don't remember how old she was when, when my son was born. Um, I I don't remember, but so I took my wife off life support. Um, and she spent, she spent a week in the ICU and I took her off life support. It wasn't something that I had discussion with the, with her side of the family about it was, I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. I'm not really asking for your permission. You know, I think this is what she would have preferred. I mean, at some point you just have to maintain some dignity. Right. And I just never stayed in touch with her family, with her okay. side of the family. What my wife and I had talked about was if anything ever happened to us, her brother would take my son. And when everything, when my wife passed, um, her brother came to me and said, yeah, no, I, I could never do anything to help you out with, you know, taking William if, if something happened to you. So after that, I just kind of, I would take him to, to see his grandparents over the summer and his half-sister would come and see him when he was at the grandparents. But then after the grandmother died, his grandfather never wanted anything to do with him. So it's just been him and me. Okay. Just kind of an island yep. by yourselves. Yep. And what do what what does a typical day look like for William <laughs> at 24 <laughs> years old? I I don't know. I mean, he, we don't interact too much. Um, I'm, I'm really going to win some dad of the year awards here, but he, um, he and I, he, he doesn't really want to interact with me. The staff gets here at five in the morning, comes in the house around six, um, stays till seven at night. Is that all Um, state funded? Yeah. Yeah. His budget's 200, his budget's $250,000 a year. That's impressive. (laughs) Okay. So those of you out there living in Florida or Texas. <laughs> yeah, don't don't live to, in Florida or Texas. Move to Maryland. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the the budget is like that because of his his behaviors. Yeah, He's got yeah. violent tendencies. Um, you know, so to your to your question about what does he do, I think he sleeps all day. I, I don't know for sure. He you know, he'll he'll often just kind of sit in it mostly because I try not to interact with him at this point. You know, okay. I, I just um I can't have my dog um, in the house with him unless the dog is with me because my son has attacked me a few times and my, now my German shepherd sees him as a threat. So, you know, it, it's, um, I just really try to, you know, not interact too much um, because I don't know what's going to set him off. Right. I, I do know he, he doesn't watch TV. You know, he, 
I've never, I don't talk about this and it's not because um, I'm embarrassed. It's just, I don't need people trying to give me advice. Right. Right. Um, They're not. So she, <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling a little bit because I don't talk about it much and I, I'm trying to put it in the right words. So he used to have a bedroom upstairs, you know, like in your typical split level house, the bedrooms are upstairs and the, the basement is kind of a set was a second living room for me, you know, and his staff would stay on the main floor. You know, if you kind of think like a, like a V almost. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Um, so I would go downstairs and that would be my, my retreat to, to get away. And he would stay in the bedroom. Um, earlier this year, he came down and just took over the basement, you know, to the point where I, I didn't want to be down there anymore because it smelled like BO. It, it just stank. He, you know, he, um, he didn't shower and, and everything else. So, I turned his bedroom into another, like a little, a little TV room for me. Um, and that's where I hang out. I don't, okay. I don't really, I mean, I'm limited to the office I'm in now, which is my, my work office, my bedroom, and then the computer, you know, where, where the TV is. Um, I go downstairs only to get food and then I bring it right back upstairs because right now he's like, right now he's on the main floor laying on a, laying on a, um, on a sofa and his staff is downstairs with him. Or he'll be downstairs in on on the in the basement on a futon bed, you know, sprawled out. Mm-hmm. But he's pretty much taken over the rest of the house. So I and just for for my sanity, because he has attacked me and I've I've put him on the ground pretty hard. Now he doesn't attack me anymore because the last time I put him down, I think I hurt him. You know, I, I feel bad, but I don't feel bad. Does that make sense? I mean, he's he's five ten, five eleven, probably two. 200 210 i'm six foot 215 so you know it's not like i'm picking on somebody smaller than me right you know when a grown man comes at you you do what you got to do um i feel you do what you got to do you know maybe there's listeners out there judging me but um i'm just i'm not willing to let somebody beat on me and and take it no and that's that's an aspect that people don't understand is the abuse that I think the caregiver often receives at the hands of our children and the appropriate reaction. I mean, it's, it's instinctual. I've had Lucas pull my hair. He scratched me. He's reached out and grabbed me and it is instinctual to turn and be like, Hey, cut it out. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So Um, my son grabs me by the throat. Okay. And, or, you know, and tries to choke me. And that's, you know, I think I, I don't think I would react as violently if somebody was pulling my hair or, right. or trying to scratch me. But you grab, you know, he grabbed me by the throat. and Right. And to try to explain that to people um, when there's a grown man assaulting you. Yeah. And what is my reaction supposed to be? You know, how would you react? Um, as I sit here and listen to you, I hear a lot of pain and frustration what in a dream world would be your ideal scenario for William? Would it be, it sounds like there's not a lot of purpose in his life, not a lot of meaning, which translates to frustration on your part. I hear frustration that he has taken over your entire life, your home. What, what would your dream scenario look like if you could construct a purposeful, meaningful life for him. 
I will tell you what I'm trying to do because I I don't know that I'll ever get to the dream state, but what I'm trying to get for him is I'm trying to get him into an apartment. I I believe behaviors come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rage doesn't just happen. Um, I think some of this probably comes from he feels like he has no control over any part of his life. And to some degree, he's right because mm-hmm. it's my house. It's my rules. It's um, and if you're if any other 24 year old would, would probably chafe at, at living living like that. Um, so I recognize that. So I want him in an apartment. Um, the staff is always going to be there because he's he's. Well, maybe not always, but right now he's incapable of buying his own groceries or, or you know, um, incapable or unwilling. I can't, at this point, I can't tell which it is. Okay. Um, he used to be able to cook his own meals. He just doesn't anymore. So does that mean he's lost the ability or does that mean he just doesn't want to because of a depression or, right? you know, it's one thing I can control. I'm going to control it. Right. Um, so when I think if he gets in his own apartment, couple things are going to happen he's going to get out from under my thumb real or perceived uh because i'm not going to go over there i'm not going to try to tell him how to live his life i'm, I'm not going to care if he makes a pigsty and he never showers and you know i'm not going to care if his apartment stinks the landlord might but i'm not going to mm-hmm. um so now i think that'll give him a sense of more autonomy and i think it'll also start to sink in that oh crap i kind of have to do stuff um Hopefully it'll lead to him wanting to leave the, leave the apartment and find a hobby or find a job. I I don't, I mean, right now he doesn't leave the house. We can't get him to leave the house for McDonald's, you know? So I'm hoping the, an apartment will get him to go outside. It will allow us to start taking him back to a doctor and back to a dentist and, and get him back into some kind of healthy lifestyle. And if it doesn't, well, at the risk of sounding callous, I'm not going to have, I don't care because it's not going to be a constant reminder every time I look at him. You know, I'm not going to have right. to walk into a house and gag because it smells so bad. Do this. I mean, are the staff cleaning? It seems like that. I have housekeepers. I mean, it's just, he doesn't right. bathe. Okay. And nobody so, can I mean, force he's showering, that. Yeah. Right. I mean, okay. I did throw him in the shower once and he's showering a little more often now, but it's a combination of B.O., and you know the poop. I mean, it just right. it stinks. It, it just it it and it and I literally get I get a gag reflex, and that's not what I want to live in. Right. And again, if he's doing it because that's the only control he has in his life, then maybe get, hopefully getting him an apartment will will give him a sense of more control, and he won't feel he has to do that. Introducing Meerkat Village, the game changer for families of children with special needs. Imagine a virtual village where parents, caregivers, and professionals collaborate seamlessly. Say goodbye to information silos and hello to personalized collaborative care. Meerkat Village empowers you to make a real difference in a child's life. Join us today and transform the way you support those who matter most. Visit meerkatvillage.com to learn more. Together, we're changing lives, one village at a time. So he gets this apartment, hypothetically. What what do his days look like? He's just sleeping at the apartment, or are we pursuing some sort of program? I, would, I mean, in a perfect world, the staff would be getting him out into a day program and, and 
working, you know, getting him back in back into the workforce. He worked when he was in high school. But honestly, just I don't care. I just want him out of my life. Yeah. And maybe hopefully my attitude will change, but right now I just I just want him out of my life. I mean, I hate yeah. to say it. I mean, I, I feel bad saying it. You sound very detached. Is part of that, do you blame him at all for your wife passing? No. no okay. No, that had nothing no, to do with it. No, I resent him for my lack of freedom. Mm. Um, I don't care about much in my life. Um, I grew up in an abusive childhood. You know, so the only thing I've ever cared about was freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife passing, I I harbored guilt about that because I took her off life support, but it has nothing to do with my son. Okay, It has to do with I was not a present husband because I was deployed all the time. I, I made the Navy more important than the relationship because I felt like I had to provide for the family. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I needed to make rank. And to make rank, I had, you know, dot, 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 right? Um, Could have, would have, should have. You know, you can't go back and change the past. Right. Um, and I, I used to enjoy being around my son. It just, since he's left high school, things have gotten miserable. And and I, I blame myself because I let him take a year off from work. And what I should have done, again, what I should have, could have, mm-hmm. is I should have got him working right away. Yeah. And instead of trying to be nice and say, oh, you know, people get gap years. And in hindsight, you know, what I did when I gave him that year is I created a new normal for him where he doesn't have to do anything and um people with autism don't like change that's i don't think that's a sweeping generalization i think i think it's well recognized by now right so anything now is going to be a change and it's going to be disruptive to him does he have relationships or meaningful people he's never had any friendships he had he had a friend in high school but the friend attacked him and now he's he's you know but growing up um, my wife was depressed, so she never left the house. So he didn't really leave the house much. And I'm not a big socializer. Like I, I deliberately chose created a job where I can work from home and do Zoom meetings. Like I don't like to socialize. Mm-hmm. So I haven't really been a good example to him. Um, but he doesn't. He doesn't have any relationships. So he's pretty. He he's pretty isolated. And I acknowledge that's not healthy. But I can't get him out of the house to do anything. Right. And just to preface a little bit for people who are listening and, and feeling like, oh my goodness, um, something needs to be done. You shared some difficult news as we hopped on even. Um, you were recently, you recently received a diagnosis of cancer yeah, and now time. facing this along with being a caregiver to a profoundly disabled young man and trying to micromanage his needs and your needs. And when you receive a diagnosis like this, you should be able to 100% completely just take care of yourself for a period of time. And I'm wondering if some of this resentment is even like, you can't do that, which is another layer of, I don't even have freedom to take care of myself during this difficult time because my son requires so much care. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong, Jess. I mean, this is the second cancer diagnosis in three years. In March of 2020, I was diagnosed with stage two melanoma, and they took off the left side of my face. So if listeners can imagine drawing a line from the bottom of your left ear to the bottom of your lip, everything above that came off. Um, you know, I had I went to Hopkins. I had a great surgeon. So people tell me they can't see any scarring. I see it, but people tell me they can't. 
Uh, and then yesterday, uh, this is, you know, on 12 October, I got diagnosed with a basal cell carcinoma on my nose, which, you know, by cancer, you know, diagnoses, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but it's just the fact it's my second one in three years and it's exhausting. It, it's, it's, and I am doing things for my son. It just, things take time. Like I'm working with his case manager. I'm working with his psychiatrist to get the medications right. So it's not like I'm doing nothing. It's just nothing moves fast. What's the holdup with the apartment? Well, it's, it's how is it going to be paid for? Okay. So I, I'm really trying to find a way. The, so there's a couple things. First, we have to read, we have to rewrite his person centered plan. And then it has to get approved by the state agency. So you have to write the PCP. The, the PCP has to be reviewed by me, and then it has to be submitted to the state. The state has to review it, approve it, send it back. And then we can start looking for, you know, the housing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want, you know, if I want it to be staffed and everything else. Um, and then it's going to be, if I'm paying for it, how am I going to come up with an extra two to $3,000 a month? Right. I just don't have that laying around. Right. Um, you know, so I've got to, I'm, I'm working on figuring out where am I going to come up with an extra $3,000 a month, you know, ongoing, you know, it's not like, oh, it's a one-time expense, just pull from your emergency fund, right? right. This is, this is going to be the, an ongoing expense. For the rest of his life and your life, yeah. most yeah. likely. Yeah. Yeah. That's and what I people still don't understand either. Yeah. Yeah. We I took still out, have a mortgage. <laughs> we have a second mortgage because we're creating a home for our son, Lucas. And it's like, that's what people don't comprehend. Like, we have two mortgages right now. It's really, really tight financially. We're going to do it because we have to create some sort of solution for our son. But yes, it'll be ongoing for the rest of our lives. Um, and it's it's just another financial layer that other families don't ever have to take into consideration. Yeah. And then there's the emotional layer. Like my fiance doesn't feel comfortable coming over here. I see her once a week. I usually see her on Saturdays. And she's not comfortable coming over and spending the night or, you know, she's caring for her mom. So there's other complexities there, mm-hmm. but there's, there's some more resentment there where it's like, I can't even have people over to the house because we don't know how you're going to react. And it's just, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> Your house becomes a tomb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we felt that during the pandemic for sure. It, um, your house is supposed to be a safe space and it doesn't feel safe. And right. then you, you have no safe space in the world because if your home isn't that, then you just don't have that. Yeah. I mean, last year I took a part-time job to get out of the house to provide respite. And my part-time job is working for hospice, <laughs> helping veterans right. who are dying connect with resources. And it's still, I've, I, I mean, I love it, but that's my respite right is going to hospice to help people who are dying right because it gets me out of the house and it gets me away from what i'm dealing with so let's talk about that is that your self-care that's part have- of it i mean it, it gets me relationships you know there's people at work that i enjoy hanging i enjoy talking to i do find a lot of meeting in helping veterans who are dying connect with benefits it's not that different than what I do with families, you know, who have disabilities and the professionals who serve them. A lot of my day job is connecting people with resources. And with veteran benefits, it's even more meaningful because a lot of these veterans are Vietnam veterans or World War II veterans. And 
they're not doing very well financially necessarily. And if I can help their widows have a have a chance of keeping their house or you know being more financially stable because I can get them benefits that are owed to them from exposure to Asian orange or whatever, then that's very meaningful to me. You know, it, it, it's, I feel like I'm doing something meaningful in life. And, mm-hmm. and then the other part of my self-care is I have a German shepherd I adopted from the shelter. I got lucky. I got a purebred German, black German shepherd from a animal shelter. He and I will do anywhere between six to nine miles a day. Um, you know, I get up in the morning and he makes sure I walk every day rain or shine i've got an umbrella you know i've got gloves it doesn't matter the weather because he doesn't want to hear it he's mm-hmm. we're going for a walk um and that that's my joy you know i i, I love him to death and he's he, I, he's great you know there's just something about dogs for me that i've always had dogs since i got married i've always had at least one dog usually two because it just it, it gives me something that i can I don't know how to explain it. It's just meaning very, it, it means a lot to me. And then he and I will go hiking on Sundays. I'm very, I, I, I sound so regimented because I am. I, you know, I don't sleep much. So I'm usually up at three in the morning and I'm usually working from three to six in the morning, take, take my dog from six to seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, go to, you know, work part-time or work on my day job and finish around two or three in the afternoon. Saturdays I see my fiance and then Sundays I'm out hiking with my dog for, you know, three, four hours. And then I come home, you know, and play video games. And, you know, it, it's, that's my self-care. It's, it's right. So when's the wedding? <laughs> no idea. No, no idea. idea. <laughs> Get the rest of your life figured out first. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I got a few things I've got to <laughs> straighten out. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Um, so if somebody wanted to help your family, how could they? I don't know, Jess. I mean, people people ask all the time, and it's like the help I need is is for my son to want to be helped, and I don't know how to do that. Like, what I would love, I guess, would be if there was like an in home therapist that could come over and work with my son magically get through to him. You know, that would be awesome. They you know, probably have my... that. <laughs> I don't know where, but I'm pretty sure they probably have that somewhere. I haven't found it. I mean, I've got no. my own therapist, but right. You know, um, but yeah, and and the therapists I've reached out to on for my son have all told me, well, if he doesn't want to talk, we can't do anything. Well, he doesn't want to talk, so I, I don't know. It's funny how that shifts from like childhood to adulthood because we've seen that shift occur with Luke too. They worked so hard on all his goals till he was 18. And then it's kind of like, well, this is just who he is. And they dropped speech therapy at school and we're like, he's just starting to talk. Why don't we keep it going? Like the word he, he hardly had any words till 16. And then he had the speech therapy from like 16 to 18. And then, Oh, he's 18. He doesn't need that anymore. Yeah. We're like, he's got like 10 words. Right. Let's, right. let's keep it going. Right. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, once they sort of hit that magical adulthood number, then, well, this is just who they are. They can't learn There's anymore. So much BS. Yeah. And we've found that most of his learning has occurred post-16. Yeah. Like, that's where he has really started to blossom with the right medications. Um, but, you know, anyway, um, where do you see an overall need for caregivers in the grand scheme of things? Like, 
what do we need? I would love to see some kind of basic income for caregivers around the country. I feel as a country, we have no clue how much people are scraping by and coming to work and maybe giving 10, 20% because that's all they have to give because they gave it all the night before caring for a mom, a dad, a, a child, or, or a spouse. Mm-hmm. If we had some kind of a universal basic income, I, I may, it doesn't have to be for every, any, everybody, but SSI and SSDI, that's not cutting it. But if we had like a universal basic income, when we said you've been identified as a caregiver, um, especially for people on FMLA, because that's unpaid, mm-hmm. you know, we are going to give you $2,000 a month or whatever the number is. Right. I live near DC. So $2,000 a month to me seems like a very low number, but somebody living in the middle of the country might be like, Oh my gosh, that's a lot. Right. right. Um, and maybe it's skewed based on your, based on where you live, but give caregivers that, that monthly check without conditions, without saying, well, you have to show us that you're working, that you're applying for jobs. That, right. And if you're getting other benefits, we're going to reduce it. Like we do with food stamps or, you know, no, just unconditional universal basic income for people that have been identified as caregivers. Is there going to be fraud? Sure. Right. You can't get away from fraud. But if you can't live your life by worrying about, oh, so-and-so is going to take advantage of the system. We, I, I just, I think that would, that would make a huge difference. I don't know that it would necessarily help my family if I'm being candid, uh, because I am working. You know, I have a pension. I have a disability, VA disability. I don't know that I would be the type of person that I feel would qualify or I would want to qualify. I'm picturing more of these single moms or a two income household that went down to a one income household because somebody has to stay home and take care of somebody full time now. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge blow, both emotionally and financially. And if you give them that financial income, maybe it means you're hiring somebody part time so you can come back in the workforce or you can just get out of the house to do go grocery shopping. Right. You know, something. Or afford uh, an apartment for your child. Yeah, like, I, I mean, yeah, that's that's where, and I've written about this too. Is I I think universal basic income could make a big difference because there's so many caregivers out there that are struggling, and I do believe, like I mentioned before, we we hit the call that I think there's a book by this name too. The body keeps the score. Oh yeah, I, great I'm a, book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a believer that the 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 nonstop stress I've been under has weakened my immune system. I don't think it caused my cancers. You know, my my the melanoma was tied to my time in service. I've, I've been rated by the VA for that, you know, because they acknowledge that something I did in the military, some areas I was in probably contributed more likely than not to my cancer. Um, it can probably be argued the same one with my basal cell because that's a skin cancer and I was in the Persian Gulf. I mean, you know, it can probably be argued that- right. Um, but the fact that the nonstop stress, you know, the lack of sleep, because, you know, I don't think I sleep more than five or six hours on any given night, not for lack of trying. Yeah, I just can't. But yeah, when I'm not home, I get eight or nine hours. Mm-hmm. So I know we need to live um, in the Caribbean. <laughs> That's <laughs> my did. husband. My husband and I laugh about that, too. Like, yeah. When we go on vacation, we have no problem sleeping. Our yeah. bodies don't hurt. We feel amazing. And the second we walk back into our home, we're like, 
Like, well, even before you get home, right? You oh, feel yeah. Like, when the plane lands, I can feel my back stiffening up, yes. my shoulders weighing down. You can um, feel it. I know. Yeah, and and you know, for me, I've tried going away, and every single time I've gone away, something has happened. Mm-hmm. I've gotten calls, or you know, I so I don't even feel like I can get away. And that's even more um, stressful if you're on vacation, and then you gotta flip the, the yes. whole vacation and rush back home. And yes, I know. It's a no-win situation. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story today. I have three questions I like to ask every guest, and I'm interested to hear your answer for this first one. How has being a caregiver changed you? Um, you know, it, uh, first, I don't know that I've ever identified as being a caregiver. I think I'm a, a I'm a caregiver under duress. Like I just, I don't identify as being a caregiver. How has it changed me? Despite how it sounds, I think I'm more patient than I was. Um, well, I know I'm more patient despite how it might sound to the listener. I had a hair trigger when I was in the Navy. Um, I'm much less volatile now, I think is how I would say it. So it, okay. it's given me more patience. If you had one hour all to yourself, how would you spend it? <laughs> Read. that's a good answer and how many cups of coffee are you drinking these days um i make a pot a day okay so where i'm at too (laughs) yep yeah 10 to 12 cups a day oh gosh i don't know that i'm quite there but (laughs) it continues to steadily increase there's something about getting older too and that elusive thing known as sleep that i'm like why am i awake at 4 a.m I yeah. want to go back to sleep. I'm still <laughs> tired. Why am I awake? <laughs> yeah, and your mind's just going a thousand oh, miles now. Oh, it and... is. And I'm thinking, like, is this the rest of my life, or am I going to hit like sixty and maybe settle into some relaxation again? I don't know. I guess. We'll yeah, there, there was a time where I would sleep with one eye open because I was afraid he was going to come in the room. Mm. Yeah, that's not fun. So where can people learn more about True North Disability Planning? And you also have a podcast. Um, well, thank you. The The website, truenorthdisabilityplanning.com, will have links to everything I do. Okay. Um, you know, I have a paid newsletter called Waypoints where I do a deep dive. Not for the faint of heart, because I usually write two to 3,000 words. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a one-minute read. It's, it's probably going to be a five- to six-minute read. Okay. Okay. Um, I have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast, ABC's Disability Planning, that you can find on any podcast. Wherever you're listening to this one, you can probably listen to that one. And that's going to be where I'm interviewing guests from around the country about disability planning topics. It's really meant to introduce the guests to organizations they've never heard of, or maybe they've heard of, but weren't sure how to tie it into what they're doing. Okay. And thank you for, for giving me that platform. But thank you for letting me share my story. Yeah, of I, course. Um, you know, I told you before we started, I'm not... I'm not a happy-go-lucky living the dream, and and I'm I'm really appreciate the fact you're willing to let me share my truths because I I don't know that a lot of people, I I know there's more people out there living like I am, but I don't think they see anything like it on TV or hear about it on the radio. That's not what's making the news, and it can be very isolating. Well, like I told you, we made a whole documentary about it. <laughs> it wasn't very happy-go-lucky. So <laughs> these are the stories that have to be shared. And of course, we sprinkle in the joy as well. But people um, people need to understand what our realities look like. So I appreciate you sharing. No, thank you, Jess. 
Thanks for joining us today on Coffee with Caregivers. And if you'd like to be considered as a guest for a future episode, please reach out at jess@thelucasproject.org. And as always, let's do what we do best. Just keep living. Thank you.